following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. These are God's words. Let me talk to you a little bit about authority. Anybody ever have a job where you were in charge of people? So we, we typically find ourselves when we're in charge of people facing a crisis moment where we desire for things to happen and things to change and we don't have the power to do it, right? Authority without authority. Anybody ever feel that way, right? Nobody? Okay, just me? All right, good deal. All right, okay, no, okay, we got some folks. I feel that way in my own house dealing with my kids, right? Authority without authority. There's times in my life where I feel like I don't have a grasp on the things that I ought to have a grasp on. I'm in charge, and yet I feel helpless. Well, our authority extends to, to it, it extends only so far. It, it doesn't matter what position you have in life. There's only so far that your authority reaches. And what I want to talk about is the authority of a man, an official, a nobleman who comes to visit Jesus, whose authority he realizes very quickly only reaches so far, but he comes and visits a man who has real authority. And I want to talk about what that real authority actually looks like. Um, We'll talk about five points this morning as we work through this. The first point is that there is for this, this, this gentleman, a, or, for, or for not just this gentleman, but we'll learn for a group of people, a dismissal of that real authority, all right? There's a dismissal of that real authority. The second point I want to highlight this morning for you is that there is a wrestling with that real authority. There's a time that we struggle with coming to grips with who Jesus is and the authority that he possesses and carries. Then at some point, there's a demonstration of that real authority. Christ shows what real authority looks like, and in that real authority, there's a decision to be made as to whether or not we'll accept and reject, which is the fourth point, the acceptance of that real authority. And the last point is the end state. What does that real authority ultimately lead us to and guide us to? So first, let's talk about the dismissal of that real authority. We're going to actually jump a few verses back to verse 43. Look there with me. 
After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Upon reading verse 43, 44, 45, the author, John the Apostle, almost seems confused in the point that he is trying to make. Jesus has now journeyed from Samaria, which we talked about last week, into Galilee. And this is considered... Galilee, Judea, these are considered homelands for Jesus, stomping grounds, if you will. This is where the Jews mainly congregate. And this is significant because he has declared and testified regarding his homelands that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. These words are clear. There is no place where someone who speaks on behalf of God is more disregarded, ignored, and even despised than in a place he is most intimately known. Do you hear that? But what is said after that should cause us to raise eyebrows. Right after he says that, he shares, John shares, Jesus' memorable words about right after he shares those words, he then appears to share how Christ is being honored in this homeland, Judea, Judea, Galilee rather. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. What? What is, what is going on here where Jesus says he is without honor in his homeland, and now John is saying people are welcoming him and celebrating the fact that he's here? Sounds like honor, doesn't it? What do, we make, what do we make of this? How do we process this and make, make sense of this? To understand this passage, we have to actually go back a few chapters. We've talked about this before. In chapter 2, for example, verse, two, uh, verse 23 through 25, we see this type of embracing of Jesus. What you have to understand is that what we've covered the last couple of chapters has been all about faith and how it is rightly appropriated in the lives of Christians. Right faith and wrong faith. That's what it's been about. When we look at the faith of Nicodemus and the wrestling and toiling that he goes under, when we look at the faith of the woman at the wells in Samaria and the faith and the, and the, and the, and the subsequent faith that follows that woman at the well when she goes and tells all of her other Samaritan brothers and sisters about Jesus. But what started off our discussion a couple, several weeks back now, a couple of months, I mean a, a month or so back now, is the discussion of faith in chapter 2, verse 23. He said this, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, he's in Judea, and in the latter part of chapter 3, he's in Samaria, or Samaria, and, chapter, in the la and then in chapter 4, he has moved on to Galilee by the end of it. And for the most part, all of that is considered homeland, and we see embracing of him in chapter 2, and we see embracing of him in this latter part of chapter 4 in his homeland. But what does it mean? 
Well, the group of people that were embracing him in chapter 2, Jesus says, or the Bible says that Jesus would not return their embrace, right? And we say, why was that? Well, because they saw the signs and believed. But they didn't necessarily trust him as Lord and Savior. They needed sight. And they kept asking for sight. They needed to see to believe. And we see the Galileans in the same position. These individuals now have welcomed Jesus, but they have welcomed Jesus and embraced Jesus based on sight alone because of what he did the last time he was here. And because of what he did the last time he was here, they say, let's let's embrace this Savior. Contrast that with with what happens in Samaria that we talked about, right? Everybody remember the story in Samaria that we just talked about last week? What happens there? Well, this woman sees no signs. The people, the Samaritans see what? No signs. Matter of fact, we read in chapter 4, verse 39 through 42, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. They heard and they believed. Goes on, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed. Listen, why did they believe? Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We heard and we know. This is what faith looks like. And Jesus has to go to a land of despised foreigners in order to see it rightly exhibited. And I need you to hear that, that I, what I just said. In a land of despised foreigners, he finds the faith he's looking for. In a land of home cooking... He's still looking for it. Abundant faith is not abundant in the homeland. They need more to believe. They keep asking them for stuff. Show me this. Show me that. Anybody ever had a Philly cheesesteak sandwich? All right. So, so I love Philly cheesesteak sandwiches. Me and my wife, we had the great, great, great pleasure of going to Philadelphia once. Um, and, and while we were in Philadelphia, uh, me and the family, we made it our mission to go to every single restaurant in Philadelphia to try to buy cheesesteak, cheese right? We wanted to try all of the cheesesteaks in Philadelphia. Not really, but we tried. We tried to go to as many as we could possibly go to. So we ate nothing else, right? Instead of like pancakes, we ate cheesesteaks. It might be taking it too far. But, but we ate a lot of cheesesteaks while we were there, okay? And so here's the point. We went, and the first restaurant we went to, the first restaurant we went to was in the market, and I, st- I stepped up excited because I get a chance to eat an actual Philly cheesesteak in Philadelphia. And so I asked, I, I asked the woman who was serving us, I said, hey, she said, what do you guys want? I said, hey, can I get a Philly cheesesteak? And she looked at me with this snooty kind of stare, like, like, who is this bomb, you know? And she said to me, honey, they all from Philly here. I said, excuse me, ma'am, can I get a cheesesteak then? She said, yeah, we can get you a cheesesteak. 
And so here, 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 here's the thing about that is that I'm excited to get this cheesesteak, but it's just a, you know, I mean, in Philadelphia, it's just another cheesesteak. I mean, how many, how many do you need? I mean, I, I get a cheese, I've gotten a cheesesteak all my life for the last 17 years. You know, I can go down this block and get a cheesesteak. I can go down this block and get a cheesesteak. So what's the big deal? All the tourists come in, it's like, can we get a Philly cheesesteak? And the people are like, oh, my gosh, here they come again. Yeah, yeah, you can get a, you can get a Philly cheesesteak. What's the point? The more we see a thing, the more we're exposed, the more we taste, the less in awe we are of it. That's what happens sometimes. So this is what happens with home cooking or hometown, the hometown effect of Christianity. They've seen Jesus. They've watched him. Some of them even couldn't even get over the fact that he was Mary and Joseph's boy. And because of that, the awe of what God has sent is no longer there. Now, how does that resonate with us as we think about what we're in right now? Well, guess what? We're in a country that you can literally go to a church on every single block. We're in a country that you can go to every single hotel in the country and pull the drawer out, and there's a Bible for you. We're in a country that you can buy Bibles in grocery stores. You can listen to any sermon from any preacher on any place on this, on this, on, in these 48 states and beyond. You can listen to him instantly from your phones. You have countless books about sermons and countless books about Bible texts and countless books about ways in which you can walk closer with God. And, and, and you've seen so much of it that you've grown numb to it. Now you show up on Sunday mornings and you don't even act like it's a big deal sometimes. You don't even have to raise your hand, but how many of you, just think about it, how many of you thought about this morning as you were driving in, I'm getting a chance to go and worship the King of Kings with my eternal family, and it caused you to rejoice? Or did you just kind of roll out of bed like, oh, okay, church? just kind of treat it just like, you know, the nine to five that you go to on Monday through Friday or the school that you wake up and prepare for. I fear that the hometown effect is not only experienced with food and it's not only experienced with Jesus's people in Judea and Galilee, but I fear that the hometown effect is also experienced by the modern day church in America. How many of you woke up with wonder in your eyes, anticipation in your heart that you were going into the house of God to worship with the people of God? Listen to how spectacular that sounds, that I'm going into the house of God to worship with the eternal family of God. And we're coming together collectively to hear from God in his word as he shares with us his eternal matters regarding the things that he's accomplishing in this universe. How exciting does that sound? Not nearly as excited as we feel about it when we wake up and come. We don't feel that excitement. A prophet has no honor in his own town in his own hometown. 
more often than not, we would probably care to acknowledge our all for Christ, but that all for Christ is abducted by the accessibility we have to the things of Christ. Paul said in Romans 13, 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come to you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Wake up, Paul says. The hour of salvation is nearer now than when you first started. What does he mean? He means every day you wake up, you're a day closer to Jesus. You're a day closer to eternity. Every day you wake up, you're a day closer to perfect peace. Every day you wake up, you're a day closer to no tears. Every day you wake up, you're a day closer. Live like you are close, not like you're far away. You're getting closer. Don't fall prey to the hometown effect. So the homeland, the hometown has infected the faith of many, many of Jesus' own people, Judea, Judea, Galilee, even an official who comes to see him, this man who's seeking Jesus' help for his own son's suffering. Verse 46, it says, so he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Here are a few things you need to know about this official, this noble man. This is a man of authority. He is somewhat familiar with Jesus' ministry. When he gets word that Jesus is close by, about 15, 20 miles, that's the distance between Cana and Capernaum. So when he, gets the, um, when he gets the word that Jesus is about 15 to 20 miles away, he says, all right, folks, let's, uh, let's get this ready because my son needs healing, and I heard that this is the man that I can go see to get him healed. So he moves out. He heads on a day's journey to see if he can get audience with this man that he's heard can do something about his son's condition. He also asked Jesus to, to come and visit, right? So, so, so he knows that this man, he doesn't, he doesn't know everything about him, but he knows he has enough power, right? He has something going on to heal my son. That's why I'm going to get him to come with me. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know how he's going to do it. But I know if I can get him in the house, something's going to happen for my son. The man also is very desperate. We know that about him. His son is on the brink of death. We see that in the scriptures. He possesses authority, like we talked about earlier, but not enough authority to do anything about his son's condition. Have you ever felt helpless for your family? feel like you can do all the type of things that, you know, everything else you feel like you can do. You can come to the rescue of that son. You can come to the rescue of that daughter and do all sorts and types of things. But there are moments and crises in your life where, where, where you can't do anything about it. The wayward son, the wayward daughter, the ill child, where your hands are tied. You, you've done everything that you could to raise these children rightly and to raise these children healthily, healthy, and then something happens and you realize, I don't have control like I thought I had control. I do not have the authority over this child that I thought I did. He's desperate. 
And he initially, believe it or not, if you read the text, he initially dismisses Jesus' discussion about genuine faith. And what do I mean by that? Well, he says this. Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The man had just asked Jesus, hey, can you come heal my son? Can you come visit us and heal my son? Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you guys will not believe. The man says, hey, can you come heal my son? And so, and so, and so can, you ima- can you imagine this discussion and how this discussion goes, right? You, you say something to somebody, and then they kind of switch it on you and give you some, other, you know, some other platitude in your mind. That's what you're thinking. This, you know, this is some kind of fancy saying, got it, whatever. Uh, can you come with me? My son's about to die. Can you come and heal my son? That's the way the text reads. That's why he repeats it. Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus is not only addressing these these words to the nobleman, because this you in this text is actually a plural you. It's a y'all in this text, actually. And so Jesus says, unless y'all, everybody out here that, I'm, that, I'm, that, I'm, that, I, that my voice is under, all the people in my homeland who do not receive their prophets, and, unless y'all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. On the contrary, the people that I just visited, these despised foreigners, the Samaritans, they believe me what? Just on my words. But the people I know best, they need signs. And they need wonders to believe. Maybe some of you wrestle in similar ways with this Christianity thing. Maybe, maybe you've seen enough to acknowledge Christ as special, but you feel like you need more before you serve him as Lord. Some evidence of safety, some evidence of security, some evidence of comfort that he brings in order to fully give and fully commit yourself to his cause and his work. And maybe the Lord is saying in this moment, you've seen my hand and you've seen enough of it. Now believe. Are you tracking with that? Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing, 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 and hearing by the word and through the word of Christ. Thomas was another disciple of Jesus. And when Jesus resurrected from the grave, everybody was excited. They were telling Thomas and testifying of what had happened. You heard that? What had happened? What had happened was, anyway, Jesus says, or Thomas says, unless I see the scars, unless I see the wounds from the nails that went through his hands and his feet, I won't believe it. And so Jesus comes. He appears, makes an appearance. And the first thing he does when he runs into Thomas and he says, hey, Look, look, look at that. You see that? Look at this. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Jesus says, oh, so now you believe because you see. Blessed are those that believe without seeing. You understand this? So Jesus begins, he, after this, he's wrestling with this gentleman, or this gentleman is wrestling with him about his authority. Jesus says, hey, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. The gentleman says, hey, just come on, just come on and heal my son, please. He, need, he, need, he needs your help. Jesus says this, verse 50. Go. 
your son will live. This is what true authority looks like. It doesn't need a location to operate. Doesn't need special conditions to be met. He doesn't need to be in the room. He doesn't need to be in the same room with his son in order for his power to be felt, in order for his power to impact this young man. His authority extends throughout all of creation. This is what real authority looks like. Throughout all of space and throughout all of time, Jesus' authority exists. Colossians 1 and 16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers of authorities or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things and in all things, and him all things hold together. He moves all of the trees in existence on the winds of his whispers. He carries us all on the clouds of his contemplations. He does not need to be present to make his presence felt in our lives and in this world. We just sung, heaven thundered and the world was born. Heaven thundered. Genesis calls it like this, let there be light. You think, that, you think the one who said, let there be light, is worried about whether or, not he needs to, whether or not he can get 15 miles down the road to get into the same room with a man that's sick or a young man that's sick? He doesn't need it. Real authority carries the ability to change both our present and eternal future on the reverberations of five words. Go, your son will live. Now, notice that as this demonstration of, of real authority is, at, is on display, notice the demonstration of grace that exists within it. Did you catch it? The man, obviously desperate, right? Can you come heal my son? Jesus, you guys got to see to believe, don't you? Uh, can you come and heal my son? And instead of him saying, nah, you don't believe yet, he says, go, your son is healed. God is healing us even when we fail to trust him rightly. God is carrying us and working in us and moving on our behalf even when we fail to trust him rightly. You think you need perfect faith in order to get God to operate? If that was the case, he would never move on your behalf. He moves in spite of us. He's, he's moving and healing even when we undermine and underestimate the authority that he carries. How often has God come through even when you weren't able to reciprocate any measure of faith back to him, how often has he come through on your behalf? 
And why does he do it? For the same reason that a father gives a son good gifts, even though that son does not reciprocate in perfect obedience, because he loves you. Because he loves you, he gives you good gifts even with imperfect faith. This man receives a good gift from God with imperfect faith in this moment. He learns something about God in this moment. This should motivate us all the more, all the more, to accept them at his word, to accept him at his word. If, if he will bless you, right, if he will bless you and keep you even in your imperfection, why resist resting in him in faith? Why resist resting in him if he will keep you even in imperfection? If he will keep you in imperfection, that means he's got you. So what does the man do next? Well, this is, this is what the scripture says says the man, this is verse 53, and he himself believed in his whole household. I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead. Excuse me, not 53, go back to 50. Verse 50, verse 53 is another believed. Verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The man believed the words that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So this man goes from saying, you got to be here, right? Come, see my son. Come, see my son. To Jesus says, go. Your son, your son will live. And he says, all right. He leaves. There's an adjustment made here in this text that means everything, doesn't it? goes from saying, I need to see it, he needs to be present in order for it to happen, to understanding that the person that he's standing in front of has far more authority than he's actually calculated. This adjustment is everything for the life of the Christian. He adjusts from needing Jesus there to believe that he can do it to just simply taking Jesus at, listen, his word. He leaves. Can you imagine that journey? Going back, to, going back towards Capernaum, 16 miles or so, 15 to 20 miles. That's a straight line journey. But just imagine, that journey is about a day if, you, if you're traveling on foot, shorter if you have animals, but not that much shorter. Can you imagine how long he has on that journey for doubt to creep in? And say, well, maybe, yeah. I mean, I mean he said he's healed. But is he really? <laughs> Does that guy really have that kind of power? Can you imagine the thoughts that, pl that plague your mind as you're on that journey? And what you have to, what, what kind of faith wrestling you have to do? I can. You can. It happens to you every day. It happens to you all the time. During your hopeless and helpless moments when you read Scripture like, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good and for those who are called according to his purpose. And it seems like you're going through days and days and days and years and years and years of tears and suffering and hopelessness. And you hear that, wait a second, 
everything that's going on is working for your good. God is doing eternal good in your life right now. How long do you have to wrestle with that, with that doubt? I didn't come here to sugarcoat it and make you think that, that, that this faith that we're, that, we're, that we're leaning on and that we're resting in and that we're depending in will not come or will come without great, great wrestle, toil, fight to believe God and not believe friends and not believe man and not believe the opinions of others, to believe God. Listen, you wrestle with that faith even when you are in, even when you are at work and God says, bless those. Love your enemies. You are in a faith wrestle in that moment to believe God, though they keep piling on, doing things to offend you, doing things to harm you. You're in a faith wrestle. Will you believe, will you take God at his word? Or do you need to see it to believe it? How much more will we have to stumble in our own ways before we begin to take our God at his word and follow when he says go? How much more mercy does God have to grant us? I'm I'm looping myself in this. I'm with you. I wrestle with this. How much more will God have to grant us? How much more mercy will he have to grant us in our unbelief before we begin to accept Christ when he speaks? And begin to walk when he tells us to walk. Begin to go where he tells us to go. Begin to do what he says do. When he tells us that there is good pleasure over here for you. So don't look in that direction. How long does he have to extend mercy before we stop looking in the direction that he called us to stop looking at and start looking in the direction that he's called us to look? I'm praying, right? I'm praying. Even as I'm preparing this sermon, I'm praying. I'm saying, Lord, help me take you at your word. Help me, help me hear what you're saying and stop needing to see it before I go with you. Help me just listen to what you say. Help me pick up this Bible, and when you call me to go in that direction, help me just go in obedience. Knowing that whether I see it in a million years, I still know that because you told me to go, that it's ultimately for my good. Go, your son will live. And so he does. So we close. Verse 51, it says, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked him the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. So what's the end game? What is God working towards and demonstrating and showing forth his real authority? What is God building? What is is God establishing in this text? And not only in this text, but just in life in general. What is he establishing? 
the end to the demonstration of Christ, of Christ's authority, is not simply showing forth good works for the sake of the works themselves. Neither is he showing his authority over sickness and disease and, and the body in general just simply to dazzle. Neither does he bring about healing simply because he cares about the physical suffering and the pain of the young man. No, it's greater than that. It's building towards something beyond that. His authority is on display to bring about faith and put an end to the dilemma of eternal suffering that this household faces without faith in Christ. He heals this young man and puts an end to his suffering, not because the young man is suffering now, but he puts an end to the suffering so that the man would believe on Jesus Christ as Lord and never have to suffer again. That's why he puts an end to the suffering. As Christians, our gospel equips us to care about the aches and the pains, not just of some suffering, but all suffering especially spiritual suffering. Pastor John Piper at the 2010 uh, Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization said this about suffering. Quote, could the evangelical church say we Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering? I hope we can say that. But if we feel resistance to saying especially eternal suffering, or if we feel resistant to saying we care about all suffering in this age, then either we have a defective view of hell or a defective heart. God calls men to good works. God does good works, not simply to put an end to suffering on earth, but so that men and women and children might believe and in so doing put a suffering or put an end to the suffering of eternity. That's why he does it. That's why this young man is healed. That's why he sends that man home on his word so that his household would believe. The second thing you should pull out from this text, uh, this, this passage that we just went through, this verse that we went through, when this man's himself, he himself believed in all his household believed, the second thing you should pull from that is that we should never expect the demonstration and manifestation of God's power and authority to end with just our amazement alone. God does not want to rest just on you being dazzled and you coming to faith. God desires that you and everyone around you come to faith. This is the beginning. This text is the first beginning of what we see as a pattern in Scripture that's often referred to. And it's the ideal of household faith. You see it all through our acts. People get saved the individual, and then behind that individual, the entire household gets saved. It doesn't mean that the, it doesn't simply mean that the, that the rest of the household just takes on the tradition of the man that just got saved. It doesn't mean that they just take on the Christian culture of the man that got saved or the woman that got saved. It means that they themselves as well believed. Listen to the words. He believed he and his household did what? Believed, not just took on nature not just took on shape, not just started going to church because dad's going to church now, but he and in his entire household believe. And so God desires that when he moves, that he moves not just for the benefit of one, but he moves for the benefit of that one and all the others connected with him. How will you, how will you work in that reality? 
How will you live your life in that reality, knowing that God's intention for me is not just for me, but God's intention for me is to be a witness outside and for others and those around me? That's the end game of his authority. Or at least one end game. There's many end games. I don't want to, I don't want to limit that. There's a lot to unpack there. But that's one end game to his authority. To see not only you, but those around you come to genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Folks, I want to share this. that you might not have enough authority, right, in this life to deal with life, period. You don't have enough authority to deal with what comes after this life. You can't withstand the flames and the embers of hellfire that come beyond this life. You don't have it. But there's one that does. There's one that does. There's one that carries the authority not only to carry you in this life, but there's one that carries the authority to carry you in the life to come. And it's simple. You take hold of that one just by taking hold of his words, believing him when he says that those that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so this morning we ask you to believe him and take him at his word. Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you. We give you all the praise, all the glory and all honor is due to your name. You are an unstoppable God. Your glory goes on and on. Your authority, Lord God, knows no bounds and no limits. Father, let us not wrestle with you regarding your proximity to our problems, your proximity to our salvation, your proximity to our satisfaction, your proximity to our joy. Father, let us realize that the words are true, that you have never left us. You would never leave us nor forsake us. Let, us. let us understand, Lord God, that your authority extends beyond space. And Father, let us simply take you at your words. That when you tell us that it is in your presence that fullness of joy is found, not in the presence of whatever the world casts to us. Let us take you at your word when, it's, when you say, Lord God, and you declare that all things are working together for the good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose, Lord God. When everything around us seems like it is falling apart, let us remember, Lord God, your word and take you at your word. That's what the men of faith and the women of faith did. That's what Job did. That's what Moses did. So, God, by your spirit, let it be us. Let it be us. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we give you all the praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.
This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.